0: Welcome to Unabridged Conversations, The Black Radical Tradition. This podcast features unedited interviews from most of the participants in the documentary film project, Conversations, The Black Radical Tradition. Released in 2021 by BK Scholar Productions, each interview is introduced by Conversations director, filmmaker, and interviewer, Edwion Easy Stokes. This episode of Unabridged Conversations, The Black Radical Tradition, features historian Dr. Leonard Jeffries. This interview was filmed between 2017 and 2018 in Brooklyn, New York. So we'll start. So tell me who you are and talk about the work that you're doing. Dr. Leonard Jeffries, Jr., Born and raised in Newark, New Jersey. In fact, I was born January the 19th, 1937. So I'm in my 80th year, and it's been a great and mighty walk. As Dr. John Henry Clark's life was portrayed by Wesley Snipes uh, and Sinclair Bourne when they produced a film, A Great and Mighty Walk. And fortunately, uh, it has fallen to me to be an educator, and so that means that the walk is continuous, it's every day, it's everywhere, and uh, it's been a great source of strength for me, because initially, as a young person, I wanted to be a lawyer. How I got that in my head, I don't know, but somehow the the idea was to become a lawyer and be an assistant to Thurgood Marshall and save the race uh, through a civil rights struggle. But it fell to me to have this enormous African world experience. And so my work has been in taking the education question and the, and the consciousness question and the political and economic questions worldwide Uh, for our people and to find a unity of the global African family. So at the current time, I'm the president of the World African Diaspora Union, which was designed more than 10 years ago to be a vehicle to coordinate the activities of pan-African organizations and to uh, assist the African Union, which is the organization of 55 African states, to assist them in their Pan-African mission of bringing the family, the global family together. So I've been lucky to have support in this endeavor and it's come from my gene pool, meaning the ancestors. It's come from my formation, meaning the education that I had, the formal education, the informal education. The formal education I describe as my million-dollar white boy education, but the real education that moves me and gives me my strength and my vision and allows me to last through trials and tribulations. The real education has been the education in the African world experience, and I refer to that as my multi-billion-dollar African education. And with the two, it allows me to synthesize a meaningful and purposeful life for myself and for the people around me, particularly the crucial members of our family. For example, my wife, I was able to marry someone who has her own African consciousness, born and raised in Harlem, 1936, 115th Street was where she lived, and Harlem was a village a dynamic village of African world components and institutions, and she grew with that. She always describes that she grew with Father Divine's people, Daddy Grace's people, and of course, the Baptists and the Methodists, but down the corner on 116th Street in Lenox was the Nation of Islam. Of Malcolm X time. So that she was born in Harlem Hospital and she claims Harlem as a special space. And so I didn't just marry a beautiful young lady who had just come back, who had been to Africa in 1960, who I met when I came back from Africa in 1961. I married a consciousness, a consciousness of, of what Harlem is is in the day and what our work is globally to raise African peoples. So the village of Harlem of my wife, Dr. Ross and Jeffries, who has been installed as a queen mother in Ghana, so she is Nana Abibio, the mother has returned. The village of Harlem has been wedded with the village of Newark, New Jersey, where I grew up in the Roseville section of Newark the western part of the city was a village, and uh, there's no way else I can describe it. And it was very foundational for, for me because my mother and father lived on 14th Street with my brother. On 13th Street, her older sister lived, and on 12th Street, my father was raised by his older sister. So those streets in the Rosewood section of Newark involved a village consciousness. We were integrated with white folks, but we had a special thing going with each other. And everybody looked out for each other. And I am proud to say of the 100 young people I grew up with, 90 of it made it big. I used to say 95, old days. I don't know why I switched it from 95 to 90, but I'm saying that all of the youngsters I grew up with were given strength, power, vision, mission, purpose, and direction. And it didn't come from the school system. It really didn't come necessarily from the Baptist or the Methodist church. We took a spirit of African values into the school system, into the church, into other institutions, and that African value system, using the triangle shape of the pyramid as I use to process information and data, the equilateral triangle has three points, the thesis, the antithesis, the opposite, and the synthesis. And what we have to do in life is synthesize information coming from various sources. So when I'm talking about my beginning in that village in Newark, New Jersey, we had an economic component because we, Newark was a manufacturing town. In order to survive, you had to have jobs. And so our people in the 40s, 50s, after the war had jobs. And economics is the first principle of the universe. It's your foundation principle. Nothing can happen without it. Economics is your creative, productive capability. But then in order to balance that economics out and have it work for you, you need politics. And politics in my heavy thinking is not just what politicians do. Politics is what you do to manage and control your life. So you have the creative productive capability paralleling the manuf- the, the manu- management capability, administrative capability. And so unfortunately, most of us think of economics in terms of rich folks, and they think of politics in terms of politicians. But you have to be creative, productive. Every cell of your body has to be creative and productive. Otherwise, you'll die a miserable life. And you have to learn to manage your world. And every part of your world has to be integrated. And the key to integration is culture. So early on, I began to appreciate economics, politics, and culture as the key to organization of institutions and societies, and going further, the universe, as you go external, beyond yourself. But you can go the opposite direction, internal, into yourself, and into the microscopic level of subatomic relationships and so every cell of your body, every parts of the cell have to be involved in economics, politics, and culture. Just like the universe that we are a part of and the multi pluriverses that we are a part of has to have economics, politics and culture as the component. So when I do look at deep at my life I look at those things economically, we were hard working black people. Some of us even had two jobs. My father, for example, had a job with his older sister who raised him because they had a cleaners and a laundry and a tailor's shop. And so he could work there, but he also could get a job in one of the many factories in North New Jersey. So that, uh, and the black men when they got jobs in Singer sewing machine, or the women when they got jobs in Berry Biscuit or Westinghouse, or Western Electric, they made sure that the other black members of their family and the community got jobs. So it was a time when black people operated with the supreme African value system of the three C's, communal, cooperative, and collective. Communal, living together, cooperative, working together, and collective, sharing. And it is that value system that Africans created eons of years ago which becomes the foundation of African culture. And because we are the foundation people of the planet, we have to look at ourselves economically, politically, and culturally, and to see those three C's, communal, cooperative, and collective, as the vehicle for allowing us to come out of what? When I was born, I was born in the Depression in 1937, but we never felt the deep, Disaster of the Depression because we had our own establishment. We owned our own homes. And so we could survive the Depression. And then we went from the Depression in the 30s to World War II. And that was a difficult trial and tribulation for everybody. But again, our system of economics, politics, and culture kicked in. And we were able to survive World War II. So there's a deep foundation that my wife comes out of and I come out of. So you had the meeting the synthesis of the Newark village experience in New Jersey with the Harlem village experience in New York and the rest is history. Let me ask you about the black radical tradition. What is it? Well, you're speaking about the contemporary black radical experience. And so that would be the radical experience that emerged out of the 20s and 30s and into the 40s and the 50s and and on. And that radical experience parallels three individuals. One is my mother, who was born in 1914. Another is Dr. John Henry Clark, who was born in 1915. And the third would be a brother from the Caribbean born in Panama of Jamaican parents. That's Ambassador Dudley Thompson, who was born in 1917. Those three individuals, their lives, very key and crucial to me. And so I'd like to weave an analysis of the radical tradition around them. Uh, Dr. John Henry Clark was born in Alabama, raised in Georgia. And he said that his foundation was three deities, three women that were his deities. One was his grandmother, the other was his mother, and the third was his fifth grade school teacher, Eveline Taylor and so Dr. Clark was born at a time when it was against the law for black folk to go heavy into education. You couldn't go into a library. Um, He used to forge the name of a white man he worked for and go into a library to get a book. So education was kept from black folk uh, because an educated mind can do revolutionary things and monumental things. So Dr. Clark came into the world crippled from the point of view of the larger white system, but the ingredients of his great development were already there, and a grandmother, a mother, and a fifth grade school teacher. So he moved from being a person who was not allowed to go into libraries, by the end of his radical traditional movement, Great and Mighty Walk, from 1915, on to his death in 1999, he was able to leave for the education of our people, 20,000 books were taken out of his Harlem home and shipped to Atlanta in the 1990s to be a part of that critical mass of our people, women and men being, being educated in Atlanta. So there's a special collection of African books that he put together. And you can bet they are the books of great African leaders on the continent. They are the books of great African leaders in America, such as W.E.B. Du Bois, such as Paul Robeson. They are the books and the stories of great African leaders in the Caribbean, such as Marcus Garvey and, and Toussaint Louverture and those in the Haitian Revolution. And of course, Dr. Clark becomes a special model of the radical tradition. In fact, his great work out of the many, which includes helping John Jackson, his mentor, do a book called Introduction to African Civilization when they had the Harlem Radical Writers Club in the 1940s. And that Harlem Radical Club included African leaders that you would not expect, but one of them was our brother, the president of Ghana, who became one of the leading radical leaders, Kwame Ture, and uh, 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 not Kwame Ture, that Kwame Ture's inspiration for Kwame Ture comes out of Otunfu, uh, uh, Osajefo, Kwame, and Kuma. Uh, and he hooked up with Uh, our brother Touré, Seguil Touré, to wed the radical tradition from the French radical community in the 40s, 50s, and 60s with the radical tradition of the English radical community. And then, out of the African-American radical tradition comes someone called W.E.B. Du Bois, who was also a part of Dr. Clark's early uh, uh, development And in fact, um, my mother was linked to W.E.B. Du Bois, as well as Marcus Garvey and Booker T. Washington uh, because they were farmers from Virginia. So Dr. Clark became the mentor of so many of us. He was the commander in chief of our forces fighting the system of white supremacy and predator capitalism and unbridled and incorrect socialism, uh, the radical African-American, African-Caribbean, African tradition helped to write that ship. And so Dr. Clark is a fundamental contributor. The year before he was born, my mother was born in Virginia, uh, within the radical tradition because, The pabulum that I grew up with, I refer to it as Booker T, W.E.B., and Marcus Garvey. In other words, the black families organized themselves inspired by Booker T, because he said, put your buckets down where you are, control your life. Take control of your farms and your land Build your institution. Now, most of us would say, well, Booker T was, uh, you know, he couldn't be in a radical tradition. In the face of the triumph of white supremacy, which is 1900, he was saying, take control of your lives. Build your institutions. Not only build the bricks for your building, design the buildings, and build them yourself. Not only grow your food, but grow your cattle, and take the wool from the sheep and do your, uh, manufacture your food, take the leather from the, from the cattle and, and... So in other words, Booker T is not considered radical, but he provides a radical break from the enslavement mentality. So my mother grew up with Booker T, they owned their farms in Virginia. And then W.E.B. Du Bois did a study of Farmville, Virginia. And my wife, my mother's aunt, Pocahontas, her great aunt, became WEB's secretary and helped him when he did the work on the uh, Philadelphia Negro. And so Booker T, in the summer of uh, WEB, the voice in the summer of 1896, spent the summer studying the families of Farnborough which includes my family and as a result, he used that as the prototype to study the migration into uh, Philadelphia. Booker T was hit by the radical tradition in Berlin, which was a radical socialization process and and, and intellectual development. And then he came back and he was hit by the need for Pan-Africanism. So the 1900 first thoughts about Pan-Africanism Booker T. Washington, uh, W.E.B. became a part of that. Booker T. became the inspiration for radicals. In fact, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois wanted to go join him and put forces together, but it just didn't happen. And then the third factor in the development of my mother, which was in my development, was Marcus Garvey. And they were Garveyites, so These radical traditions of controlling your land, self-determining, developing a leadership group, a talented tenth, voice, and then seeing yourselves as a global African uh, family, uh, Garvey, that was what my mother migrated out of Virginia with, and with her father, who happens to be the person whose date, birth date I was on, January 19, 1937, I was born. The family had migrated in the 20s out of Virginia. My grandfather was born in January the 19th, 1888. And he became part of the African consciousness movement. In the 30s, because of the depression and because of the First World War and post-World War rise of communism, the Russian state, the radicalism of black nationalism became a deeper process and so, People like Ambassador Dudley Thompson, who was born in 1917 uh, in Jamaica. He inherits, by the nature of his birth, the Garvey tradition. But 1917 is the radical tradition of black struggle in America. 1917, you had this the red summer of 1919, but in 1917, you had East St. Louis uh, riot and rebellion, unfortunately for me, but again, it was a fortune. You had the murder of my grandfather. My father's father was murdered by the Klan in 1917, and so uh, fortunately for me, the Klan didn't rise a few years before, otherwise I wouldn't have been here, in other words, so give thanks. but we're celebrating right now the 100th anniversary of his death, uh, my grandfather's death. But 1917 is the birth of revolutionary communism. And so you had black nationalism, Pan-Africanism, socialism, revolutionary communism, all coming together in the period between the World Wars, World War I and World War II. And so anything we call black radicalism has its multiple deep roots in that process. So that's why when I say we need to analyze things, I use the pyramidal shape so we can talk about thesis, the foundation. And thesis begets an antithesis, the law of opposites in the universe, and the synthesis of the thesis with the antithesis produces a synthesis. So the black radical tradition is a synthesis. And it needs to see itself in various dimensions, not just in Marxist-Leninism, but also Pan-Africanism, also black nationalism. And so, in my lifetime, I wove together W.E.B. Du Bois, radical, died in 1963 in Ghana. I was there with him, and he had declared himself a communist just to get back at the at the struggles he had, the way he's being a radical. And I was leaving Ghana when he died August the 28th and on a plane flying to America to join another black radical tradition. And that was Martin Luther King had just completed the March on Washington. And it was so exciting that these white Polish Irish and Italian cab drivers, when I arrived in Kennedy, they were all excited about what happened the day before. That was the march on Washington. So I actually am a physical bridge, a psychological bridge, a philosophical bridge between W.E.B. Du Bois, who was a part of my life, all of my life, and King, who was a part of my life, all of my life. Because King was born in Georgia. My father's family is from Georgia. King was born January the 15th. I was born January the 19th, several years apart. So the radical tradition of King, and he is radical. In 1968, they didn't kill a dreamer. They didn't kill somebody who was talking about peace. They killed somebody who had gone through a transformation that let's deal with the economics of the system and let's shake it up. Let's deal with the politics of the system and let's rattle it up. Let's deal with the culture of the system. And he was declaring in Memphis, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. And that promised land means that you've got to develop your own economics. You need to have your own banks, your own insurance company. You've got to have your own political. You just can't be a part of somebody else's party. You've got to have your own political party. And then culturally, you've got to be prepared to give your life for something. So the radical tradition of the voice with King. I was a bridge in that sixty-three date. But sixty-three I was also a bridge on the African continent, between Senegal, Mali, Guinea, the Gambia, Sierra Leone, Liberia, Ivory Coast, Ghana. Togo, Dahomey, Nigeria, Cameroon, all the way down to the Congo. It was my job to run through these nations and set up programs linking us in America, the conscious people, with the African continent. I'm in the Congo in 1964, with other chaos. Trying to figure out how we can possibly have a program there, and I had to go through the UN establishment which was there to try to help give some substance to the Congo nature because Belgian Congo have been so exploited, one of the most exploited lands in the history of the world, and there was no training of African leadership to run the Congo. When Lumumba, who was one of my special people, had a vision to raise the question of Congo independence and charging the Belgians with reparations. This was in 1960. By January 21st, 1961, he was murdered. Not by Mobutu, but the power forces that be trying to block any radicalism. The English secret societies and power brokers, the CIA in America, the French, Uh, political arm, the Belgian political arm, they conspired to remove this one brother who couldn't have transformed the Congo. Congo only had 12 college graduates and he was one of them and all of them were graduates in religion. But he had hooked up in the few years before with our brother Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah was taking radical young leaders and bringing them to Ghana in 1957, Ghana became independent. 1956, the Sudan became independent. 1950s, there was a revolutionary atmosphere. We have been born in this radical tradition. It's not just sit-ins and, and call for peace and turn the other cheek. 1945 to 1995 is the radical turning point of our history. Hey. Well, go deep, Dr. J, you're putting something out there, you gotta go deep. European world system collapsed with World War I. Millions, tens of millions, 100 million people were either murdered or slaughtered or injured. White on white crime at its max. In order to save the white system, the white people went black. They said, we, we done killed enough of us, we gotta get our black power forces in here." Who's gonna win, the German side or the English side? And the English and the French side took millions of Africans out of their villages and put them in the killing fields in World War I. Well, what did that do? That created a global consciousness of African peoples and these soldiers went back to their nations and they became the fodder to organize African movements for independence, etc. World War I. That's at the time that Russia collapsed and the Russian Revolution burst forth. So at the time that you have burning in American cities, meaning riots, 25 racial riots in 1919. Uh, Rosewood, Tulsa in 1921, 23. And so there is movement. The systems are being changed. The systems are going through transformation, etc. The European French had exhausted their manhood, fighting the Germans in a 100 years war going through the 1800s up to the World War I. That's the second 100 years war of the French and the English and the Germans fighting each other. At any rate, the French said to America, if you don't have sense enough to use your black power to fight in the war with your troops, the French will take your black men and use them in French. So thousands and thousands of black men were recruited into the French army with the agreement of the Americans. They did not want to arm their black men and they said if they're armed, they need to be out of the country. And so black regiments fought in World War I in the French military and they were honored collectively as hell fighters. We were trying to get down to FDR Drive just a little while ago and we would have come to 143rd Street, 143, where there is a monument to the black men who fought in the 369th and led the victory parade up Fifth Avenue. They led all of the white troops up Fifth Avenue. They weren't in American regimental form, they were in French regimental form, French uh, uh, arms they carried, as they led the march up Fifth Avenue, and they didn't stop at 110th Street. They continued stepping straight up into Harlem. This is World War One. You talk about the radical tradition, black radical tradition, Russian radical tradition, French radical tradition, all of those things were coming together between World War I and World War II. But the world system of greed called capitalism collapsed on its face after a period of super exploitation in the roaring twenties. The whole system collapsed, manipulation of monies and all of the rest. And so Again, everybody was in trouble. White folks was on lines uh, getting an apple. White soldiers who had fought in World War I had a march on Washington before we had our marches in the 50s, and they was marching to get their promised bonuses for the Army. White soldiers, veterans, marched on Washington, D.C. to demand grievances. And they were met with what power does with marches. They were gunned down by General MacArthur leading the forces on white troops. So if this is the reality in the 20s of white folks, you can expect what happened to us in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, going on to now. So we got to have a systems analysis. The white system will do anything, any perversion, any trick, any monstrosity to maintain itself and the super exploitation. And the last manifestation of it is Trump the Trump. Trump the chump, who is now the symbol of this process of domination, destruction, and death and the super exploitation of peoples. But our turning point of history, as you mentioned, is clear. It's 1945 to 1995. And in 1945, after the, the second 100 million death and destruction. See, they talk about white-on-white crime in Chicago, white-on-white crime in Harlem, white-on-white crime in St. Louis, and in, in Baltimore. The biggest white-on-white crime in the history of the world is World War I, where 100 million people were affected, and World War II, where another 100 million people were affected. And it was white people dropping bombs on, on each other. And they needed, however, black power in order to save the day, and the Battle of the Budge was the was the big turning point of World War II, and 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 General Patton said, "Where are my troops? We we got to close that bulge. The Germans are going to break through, and this war will continue." And and his people said, "Well, we 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 don't have any more, uh, uh, General." So. We're in a bind. He said, what about all those troops we were training in America? He said, they said, what what do you mean? Those black troops, they're they're still in America. They're still in America. We need those suckers here in America and Europe. And the black troops were being trained using trucks as tankers. They wouldn't even give them real trucks to train by but they became so adept at using trucks and doing a game of warfare that Patton brought those suckers to the battlefield, untested, put them in trucks, and they became the saving power in World War II. That story ain't told. We don't know. That's the radical black tradition of stepping into history and taking your place in it. And so after the war was over, white folks go back to the same thing. Let's put white power back in place. So they met in San Francisco in June 1945. All these white nations meeting to put their world back together again, including Germany, Italy. They had been on the wrong side of history. And so they meet. No black people, maybe an observer. One black man, radical, from the radical tradition actually becomes an important part of what the the, the United Nations put together out of the League of Nations. And that brother was Ralph Bunch, who comes out of the radical tradition of radicals and nationalists at Howard University. In fact, he was a part of what was called the Hansberry, block. In other words, the Hansberry group at Howard. <laughs> this flow is coming out. And Kuma was at Lincoln learning religious studies. But a friend of ours, Philpott, would take him in his car from Philadelphia, from Lincoln to Philadelphia, where he and Kuma engaged in the radical tradition of W.E.B. Du Bois in Philadelphia, where he had redone several of his works, including Black Reconstruction, and had given it a more radical twist because he had this greater knowledge of communism, Marxism, and socialism. So, Philpot takes a religious perspective in Krumah to meet the spirit and the work of the radical W.E.B. Du Bois. Then the next weekend, he takes them down to Washington where he meets the Hansberry group. And around Leo Hansberry, who set up the African Studies at Howard, you had offices of these others, including Ralph Bunch. And that radical group would instill in nkrumah a greater understanding of what the struggle was. So you got two pieces to the puzzle. you got Philadelphia thesis. The opposite, the antithesis, is Washington, DC. And then the culmination, the synthesis, is that special village in the African world called Harlem. And Philpott would take our brother Nkrumah from Lincoln and drive him to Harlem. And Harlem was where he had a significant growth in his consciousness. And that growth was not riding on the subway trains because he didn't have any money. Now that's a part of the legacy, a legend of Nkrumah, but that don't fit, the, it don't fit the reality. He was being trained as a minister. And so as a young minister from Africa, because we still had this thing, we need to save Africa, the spirit of Haile Selassie, who in 1936, 37, was pleading to the world, you've got to save Ethiopia, because what is happening to Ethiopia will happen to the rest of you. And sure enough, he was correct. They went into World War II right after that with the fascist struggles in Spain and then with Poland being raped by, by Hitler and the rest. But this brother, Haile Selassie, who was pleading for Ethiopia, had inspired people to form the Harlem History Club and to fight to help Ethiopia with the attack. That Harlem History Club was where Nkrumah went to meet the Dr. John Henry Clark to meet Dr. Uh, Willis Huggins and get greater understanding of the radical tradition that he began to move into seriously. So 1945 to 1995 is where this radical tradition has cemented itself. I want to ask you a little bit about some work from C.L.R. C. L. James and you can sort of... Put him do, right you know, in there. This in it. Uh, okay. me, so talk about the, uh, he talks about Sort of your, I guess, what is the importance of that text? Like, you sort of was, like, about Yes. C.L.R. Trains is one of our great radical thinkers and doers. But unfortunately he got stuck in England. But he didn't get stuck by himself. So that's why I want to set the stage 1945 to 1995. 1945, when the UN was being formed by white power, and they were reinstituting their plan economically, politically, and culturally to control the world. They decided that they could not rebuild Europe, they could have American dollars, but they needed the mineral resources of Africa. So they came up with a plan for the recolonization of Africa. That's in the charter of the United Nations and the North Atlantic Treaty, that was the military arm of that white power. That was in the summer. But in the fall, black power got together. And that comparison is not made. I've lived it, I gotta make it. While the Europeans put together white power knowing that they needed black riches to make white power work, They had no plans for anything serious in in the black world except the recolonization. But the creator and, and the forces that be in the universe had other plans. Black people met first with a radical group of labor leaders in early October in London. And I'll give you the brochure on that. Later in October and November, black people met in Manchester, England, which was a radical spot for black folk uh, because it was a manufacturing area and it had the universities and the schools. So black people decided not to meet in London, not to meet in Liverpool, uh, but to meet in Manchester. And who met? The black radicals. Who was there in Manchester when they had the 5th Pan-African Congress? The tallest significant intellectual in our tradition. And he was made the president, W.E.B. Du Bois. November 45, putting and planning the African world's future were these black folk. Who was there as the secretary of the movement? Osagefo, Kwame Nkrumah, who was there? Tall tree in our cultural forest, Paul Robeson. Who was there from Trinidad, CLR James, George Padmore, and a whole host of others? Who was there from Guyana? Ross McConnell. these brothers from Jamaica, from Trinidad, from black America, met to map out our future. Less than 200 of them were there. And it was one of the most timely meetings in our history because they had to plan an economic program for black people, a political program for black people, and a cultural program for black people. And so that sixth Pan-African, fifth Pan-African conference, is a turning point of our history. And the radical writer, thinker, would be C.L.R. James as an elder. But the person who knew how to maneuver in England and put up institutions was Ross McConnell. He came out of of, uh, a family that had businesses. So he set up a string of restaurants in Manchester and other, those restaurants were the restaurants that took care of C.L.R. James and all these radicals who were doing their radical things. They had an economic plan. It was the restaurants of Ross McConnell. They had a political plan. Become part of the radical Brits, the socialists, the Fabian socialists, the Marxist socialists, etc. So here they are coming from oppression, the colonies. And then, of course, we had the same thing in America. We knew what we came out of. The oppression in the South and the oppression in our urban areas. So this group of 200, not just CLR James is, is symptomatic of who was there, but his countryman Padma was there. CLR became a radical forever and stayed that way. He produced the Black Jacobins. That's the study of the Haitian Revolution. He produced his other works. But his Trinidadian partner was the leading communist, black in the world, and his name was George Padmore. He was a part of the common term, so he had the chance to see what happened to Marxist-Leninists that had now gone into the hands of Stalin. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's no longer theoretical Marxist-Leninists, it's no longer practical, it's no longer Trotskyism, uh, Trotskyitism. It's in the hand of Stalin, who was a a white Russian wannabe. So communism that came as a radical force around World War II now turns into white Russian nationalism around Stalin. Who was there to peep it? Who was there to understand it? George Padmore. So he wrote a book called Communism or Pan-Africanism. Reverse it. Pan-Africanism or Communism. And he had firsthand experience. So these are the ideas, the minds, that go into this period of African coming together. It's an important period. And that's my, I'm 10 years old, 1945. I'm not even 10 yet, I'm eight years old. And these ideas are bombarding me in the form of of, uh, 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 baseball, in the form of boxing, in the form of 1946, Joe Lewis coming out, knocking out a white man a, a month. You know, boom, 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 the Brown Bomber. And then he took out Max Smelling, took out the German uh, uh, champion. Set. So when, in 1946, when he was uh, going after Billy Kahn, and uh, boom, 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 taking Billy Kahn down, I felt bad because my good friend was Billy Curran, who was a poor white fellow who lived on Orange Street. in He lived in the back of a shoe store. But when Joe Lewis was fighting Billy really Curry, there was no question of where I was going, so boom, 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 So you had this inspiration of a Joe Lewis in 46. In 46, they were already grooming Jackie Robinson to go into the, uh, into the he was up at, at, in Montreal. My father drove his big Buick up to Montreal to see Jackie. We saw Jackie Robinson do his thing in 46. Then when he came in 47 to the major leagues, it was a transformative experience experience. So you had a Paul Robinson doing his thing. You had in Jersey. You had uh, Jesse uh, in Brooklyn, Jackie Robinson. You had on the, in, in, the, in the ring worldwide. You had this image of black manhood emerging. But more than those outstanding figures, you had political leaders emerging. And so those brothers who were there, including Nkrumah in England, also included an old socialist soul. And his name was Joma Kenyatta. And Joma Kenyatta was in England with the rest of them. And so uh, you had an old African nationalist soul there. And he came out of Lincoln University. He taught in Kuma in Lincoln. And he knew very closely Du Bois. And his name was Nandi Azikwe. He became the president of Nigeria. So, look at this coming together for these two months. this sweep of the African world uh, and so, when they left and they had their declaration of African independence, they left there with the responsibility: go home to your nations, mobilize and organize, create liberation movements, uh, demand self government and let that self government lead to independent African nations and so the black radical tradition is not a theoretical formulation. It's not something in conferences. It's not something on street corners. It's something that an idea that permeated our people and went all the way down to the villages in Africa. So Kumo went back to Ghana, but first he spent a couple years in England, but eventually in 47, he went back to Ghana and uh, he was invited back by the more radical, more moderate black leaders Um, to be, to assist them, to be their secretary. Um, And so he went back. um, uh, Boussia, the great leader of that time, uh, brought him back. But he had these radical ideas now. So he moved past what the moderates saw as African nationalism. He was moving into African radicalism nationally. So, and he wasn't alone. There was a whole body moving around the world. They called it the third world consciousness. And so here's how we can tie that together in terms of what I call a 50-year turning point of history in the favor of peoples of color. 1945, white system is putting itself together in San Francisco, summer. Fall, the black system capability comes together at the Pan-African. Planning. If you don't plan, you plan to fail. So they all were into this planning. Socialism helps you plan, it it helps you project. It's not just uh, setting up a business making money, it's planning an economy or an industry at any rate. 1945, Manchester, black power. 1946, Indonesia becomes independent. The Dutch try to go back to recolonize Indonesia their richest colony. But they had armed them in World War II to fight the Japanese who were coming down the north to control the Pacific. So new African consciousness, socialist consciousness, radical consciousness, Asian consciousness was there among the Indonesians and they used that political armor Consciousness, and they used the military power that they were trained in to turn on the colonizers. So they told the Dutch, go back to Amsterdam where you got your wood shoes, your windmills, and, and your little Dutch women carrying the water cans. And so Indonesia, black power is declared in 1945. Indonesian Asian power is declared in 1946. 1947, a spiritual force goes back to India he had been spending some time in, in South Africa, sort of difficulties in South Africa, but spirit moved him back to his homeland. And in 1945, 46, he's doing his work in his homeland, and he's telling the people, deal with the economics, and then deal with the politics and deal with the culture. Mahatma Gandhi went back to India, and he said, deal with the economics. Follow me, not in turn the other cheek. But don't wear European garments. Don't wear the clothes coming out of Manchester and Liverpool. Weave your own clothing. Do for self. So he wore a simple white wrap that was produced in India. He led the revolution in India by example. So in 1945, Pan-African movement, 1946, Indonesian movement, 1947, India movement, unfortunately he didn't have the power to bridge the gap between the Hindu culture and Islam. So that eventually breaks off into Pakistan. 1948, there's a struggle in the so-called Middle East and that produces the Israeli state with Ralph Bunch as a key moderator. He was a part of the Hansberry group in the 1940s the 1940s at Howard. So 1948, you got power, 1949, The biggest revolution in human history, Mao Zedong, leads his people to victory in China. 1950, it doesn't stop, it continues. 52, Gamal Nasser and Nagib, the first time black people rule in 2,000 years in in Egypt. 1953, Mossadegh, trying to control the oil in Iran, but they eventually overthrow him and impose the shore. 1954, Dembian Fu, these little people in Asia led by Ho Chi Minh and General Giap, kick ass and knock out the French forces at Dien Bien Phu, And the rest is history, still, they still, you can still feel the fighting in Vietnam. They've, they fought the Japanese, they fought the French, they fought the Americans. And they told others that we want to be independent. So 1955, these new African nations and whatnot, meet in Bandung, Indonesia. And who was there? The leaders of China and, 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 and Africa, etc. Who was there from black America? Our Reverend, what's in your hand, black man? The Reverend Adam Clayton Powell representing black America in 1955 in Bandung because the movement had already started in the streets of America. You already had Emmett Till. You already had the Montgomery Bus Boycott. So the movement started, and it was in the north also with Adam Clayton Powell. So you have a global movement of the disinherited, now inheriting. Frantz Fanon is emerging out of Martinique at this time with his thoughts of the, 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 the rise of the poor, and he is in what revolution? He ain't fighting the French in, in uh, Martinique or Guadeloupe. He's with the Algerian revolution, fighting against the French imperialism. So you're talking about a radical tradition, it's real. It's been my lifetime. 1937 into now has been the radical tradition of people of color trying to find their way. So we don't stop it at, at the 1950s uh, with the Gamal Nasser and, and, and Naguib, or uh, Mossadegh in Iran or, or them being fooled. You go to 1940s 1956, the Sudan is independent. 1957, Ghana is independent. 1958, Guinea is independent. 1959, the Cuban Revolution. The 1960s, Nigeria is independent. A dozen African nations are independent. There's movement in America. I'm studying in Europe at that time, and every day I go to get a newspaper. 1959, 60, I was meeting radical traditions in Europe. I went to study French, but I met African Europe. It wasn't easy because I didn't want to go to Paris when I won this Rotary International Fellowship because can you imagine what I looked like as a 19, 20, 21 year old? Me in Paris, that wouldn't have worked. I realized that, I grew up with white folks. And so I said, even Brussels wasn't gonna work for me. Too many white folks. I picked the smallest place I could get. Geneva and, Lake, uh, and Switzerland was too small, uh, not, it was too large. I picked a university up from Geneva, along Lake Geneva called Lausanne, which was a converted castle and, and cathedral. And I studied international affairs there. But I wanted some homeboys, but there was none. So when I, I went around and I saw a black fellow, I ran after him. Brother, who are you? Where are you from? And he responded very proudly, je suis Francais. I said, what? You're French? And he said yes. So I gave up on him. So uh, later I saw somebody else, uh, black, I ran and said, brother, who are you? Je suis Francais. I said, what's going on here? These people are as black as the ace of spades, got full noses, full lips, fat behind, tight hair, and they're French. So I gave up on dark people. I said, maybe I could find some brotherhood in one of these light fellows, like my brother, uh, Marlon, the martial arts master. And so I ran and said, brother, who are you? He looked at me and said, "Just suis Francais. I said, what? He was from Martinique, Guadeloupe, or the elite of Haiti. In fact, I was in trouble. I needed to find me something black, and it wasn't there. Spirit said, make a pilgrimage out of Lausanne, past Geneva, under Mont Blanc and come out on the other side in France Lyon and go to Paris go to Paris don't go to the elysees you ain't got no money to buy nothing anyway don't go to Montmartre because you're not interested in, 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 in the artist community don't go to Pigalle because you're not interested in white women standing in the doorway offering you favors go to the student quarter go to the Sorbonne, and then I went to the Rue des Ecoles, which is the street of schools in the left bank. And on that street of schools is a a college called the Collège de France. And next to it, down the road, is the Sorbonne. And right there in that mix is something called Présence Africaine. And Présence Africaine was a library center for black African radical thinking. And it was there that I met the founder, who in 1947 left Senegal and went to, went to France and set up this publishing house, this library, this meeting place. And his name was Alion Jupp. And his wife, Madame Jupp, set up the most important intellectual center for black people. And it was at that time, in 1959, going there and meeting them, that they introduced me to their prime project, their prime mentee. And his name was Dr. Sheikh Anta I met Shikanta, Anta, a true radical, beyond radical understandings, a true Pan-Africanist. I met him in 1959 at Presence African. And his spirit and mine. Have connected ever since. Dr. Clark met him at a radical conference in Rome of writers in 1958. 1958, I was still finishing up at Lafayette College. But I'm one of the earliest of us to, to meet Shekhan Tadjib. And not only that, we partnered. We became serious partners. Uh, 1960, he had to defend his dissertation twice because they didn't want to give him a dissertation. He finally did complete it, because what he did was, for the third defense, he brought scholars, white and black, from around the world to be in the audience while he defended his thesis of the African origin of civilization, the African cultural unity. And so he was able to get his dissertation passed. The first book that I got from him was Les Fondements Économiques et Social de l'État Federal African. It was a book on looking at African resources and seeing how they could be used for a United States of Africa. And that book did not come out in English. It was published in 1960 in France. It did not come out in English until 14 or 15 years later in America. And it's called Black Africa. But my link with the radical African continental, French side, Chekanta, was a blessing because not only did he believe in the ideas, he was a scientist. And not only was a scientist, he was born a Muslim. So he had that deep African Muslim tradition of the Maureeds. And then he was a good student because of the Muslim training. So he went into the French high schools and lycées, and he was a top student. So he got the best training that the French gave to their own nationals in Senegal. And then in 47, he left there, uh, Senegal, and went to France. And that's when he eventually hooked up uh, with uh, Alion Diop and others, and eventually his his, uh, wonderful wife, who was a French lady who supported him in the intellectual endeavors and and raised the four uh, boys that he had. And so this relationship to radicalism, uh, no one has ever asked me that question and it has never come out this way. So praise the Lord and uh, other Lords and whatnot, and thank the ancestors that tying this radical tradition explains how you have a Du Bois, a T. Thomas Fortune, the radical, a Marcus Garvey movement, radical, uh, black nationalist movement, radical, even marching in the streets facing the potential death of the Klan radical. And so it is this black radicalism that allowed us to flip the world over and and give us a share of it. And so just let me run through the completion of the 60s. And so in 1960, I meet Africa in Europe, but by 1961, I meet the Reverend James Robinson. So I'm in Africa, and my wife had been in there the year before and so then we meet and eventually we have others such as uh, John Kennard who who took care of all of East Africa, and Southern Africa, North Africa in 62, 63 and 64 and, and I took care of West Africa, French Africa, Portuguese Africa and uh, 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 the English uh, nations in West Africa. So. Radicalism is when you are in Europe and you know about the movement and then you learn that they murdered Lumumba. And then you can't look at the Congo same anymore. And then you know that he was raised as a radical with the youth that Nkrumah was training in, in Ghana and, and so many others who went back to the Portuguese territories and others and had the support coming from the, the Ghana revolution. And the Ghana revolution also saved the revolution in Guinea because Ghana's success of, of independence in 57 and who was there? at the Ghana independence, Who was with Nkrumah celebrating it? The not-so-radical African-American elite was there. Who was there? The Johnsons. And I'm not talking about Jack Johnson, who was killing folks. I'm talking about Mordecai Johnson, the president of Howard. Who was there? The Johnsons. Not the boxing Johnson, but the one who set up in the 1940s the most significant black magazine. You're talking about John Johnson, the president of, and the founder and publisher of Ebony. Who was there? These black folks from America were there, with Puma, because he had the American experience, and he invited them to come over and share. And so we've got to see these connectedness. Wyatt T. Walker, Dr. Wyatt T. Walker told me that when times got hard in the struggle down south, because he was the lieutenant for Martin Luther King, Dr. Wyatt T. Walker, who was set up his church in New York, uh, in Canaan Baptist Church, but he said when King wanted to encourage us to go on, he said, look, remember the, the weeks that I was in Africa with the birth of a new nation, with the bringing down of the Union Jack, the British flag, and the raising up of the flag of liberation and independence. The Black Star flag of Marcus Garvey was raised over Ghana. And so he he was able to use the African experience to uh, highlight going to prison. And Krumah and them wore their prison garb, the, the big six, uh, to let them know that prison was a glory because we were fighting for the people. And so these were the things that helped Ryati right walk in them in jail. When, so we don't know that. We think what King was just dealing with the European philosophers and, and Gandhi. No, it was a part of the radical African tradition of um, taking control of your world. That's a part of it. But we go into the 60s and you have all these independent African nations and I'm in the middle of them. I'm in the Ivy Coast in 61. After we finished our work com- workshop in the Ivy Coast and because I speak French, I was the leader of the group, we made a eight nation tour of West Africa. So you saw the birth of this new nation. You met the leaders of the new nation and then you left it to go west to Liberia. And then you cross Ivy Coast and go north to Upper Volta, Burkina Faso now. And who do you meet in Upper Volta? The new leader of Upper Volta. Who do you meet in Upper Volta? The Moranaba, the 44th emperor ruling the Mosi people. And now that he's the traditional leader, he can't be a lawyer which he was trained to be, he can't play football, which he loved to be. As a traditional leader, you gotta take care of traditional business. But he had a stadium built near his palace and he had a playing field and he wanted us, the African Americans, uh, to play basketball and and, uh, soccer with his group. Then we left Upper Volta and we went to Niger. Then we crossed Niger and crossed the Niger River and came into uh, uh, Dahomey at the time, which is now Benin, and we went along the coast and from the coast we went from Kotonou in uh, uh, Dahomey, Benin over to uh, Togo and then on to Ghana. And then there we met the vision of Nkrumah. I thought we were going to see the this project called the Volta River Project, but I was so glad to get to Ghana because the French-speaking area had this delicate um, ice cream. But when I got to Ghana, I saw a big billboard that was advertising bulk ice cream, and I grew up on ice cream. So I said, Ghana is really civilized. It's really the joint. <laughs> so since I was leader of the group, the real leader said, you can go get some African food or you can go with Jeffrey's, because I had proposed ice cream and blueberry muffins. So, of course, they all went because we, when you're out of your culture, you want a taste of your culture. After two months of boiling your water, two months of fufu and banana and all of this stuff. But then here's the important thing that I, I want to leave for people in the radical tradition and this new vision of Africa. We went to a, a, a mountainside and we're on a bluff. And this was supposed to be the Volta River project that Nkrumah built, but it was not. It was a plan he had in mind. And so you look at this billboard, this big billboard, and it says, look straight ahead, and you see a mountain, you see two mountain ranges coming together. He said the plan is to fill in those mountain ranges with an earth-filled dam, and behind it will grow a lake of 150 miles. And the power of that lake and that dam will create electrical power and there will be an electrical generator at the base of the dam. And that will provide electricity for one of the largest smelters for aluminum in the world. And it will also be the basis for a new industrial city called Tama and a new port. Now I'm looking at these plans on this billboard. I just traveled through a half dozen African nations that didn't have roads. they didn't have bridges. We were riding along a road, we got stuck, we'd have to go get a village to pull us out of the mud. We had to boil our water because they didn't have water that was drinkable. Uh, they had these little towns and they didn't have any, although Abidjan you could see was gonna be an emerging large city. But I said, how can this be done? That was in 1961. It took five years. And after my wife and I made a 13-nation tour through West Africa, setting up programs for operations across West Africa, we arrived back in Ghana in February 1966. And the project had been completed. Dam, lake, 150 miles, to produce fish and, and, and the power for... The smelter and the, and the new industrial city, silos to control the cocoa production, a uh, farmers' group here. In other words, they, a whole new model of African socialism, a, a new port with, uh, for deep uh, uh, water vessels, and new housing designs, patterns for housing, grouping housing together at different income levels. So, I mean, he completed the dam uh, and the project. And they gave him the keys to it because the world corporate g- giants built it. I sort of want to uh, I sort of handle this because I. Tied right. It right yeah. Let me just yeah, let yeah, me no, just t- tie it together. Yeah. The Canadians, the French, the British, the Americans, helped build the, the project because they did not want another Gamal Nasser and having his industrial project, the great Aswan Dam, built by the Russians. So the capitalists built the dam. And then after it was completed, they gave him the keys in February of 66. And within weeks after getting the keys, when he had flown to Peking to celebrate this great victory for third world peoples, February the 22nd, I believe it was, we were flying out of Africa to go to Ivory Coast because I said we're, we could drive back and forth to Ghana we're tired after 13 countries and while I was flying out writing notes to my buddies that we just had a fantastic trip to West Africa and I'm looking at a stream of light on my left coming from the toll road at Tema and then we're flying over a burst of light and that is job 600 that's where Nkrumah designed to build uh, suites for the leaders of African nations and a capital in other words a congress a a representative in other words he had designed in his vision what the African capital was going to be and by the time we got to Ivory Coast the coup had taken place and he was the greatest African leader was completely devastated however that's not the end of the story the end of the story is that he took wealth in 1957 from Ghana to save the Guinea revolution, because the French really didn't want to give them independence. They wanted them to be, become part of the French Union, and so Guinea was the only one that said no, because there was a saying in Guinea, I've been in Guinea in 62, 63, 64, 65, there was a saying in Guinea, nous préférons la misère dans la liberté à l'opérance dans l'esclavage." That was the song everybody sung. We prefer freedom and poverty than slavery and opulence. And so Nkrumah actually took millions and millions of dollars of the Ghana Cocoa money and their gold reserves and gave it to Guinea to save the Guinea Revolution. Now this brotherhood relationship of these minds and these nations completes itself. When Nkrumah is overthrown, he cannot get back to Ghana. He's an embarrassment. All of us are in tears. Our greatest leader, isolated and completely devastated. And he was going to go to Romania because he had good friends in the Third World Movement there. Sekulture had other plans. If you talk about a radical, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, yes, Sekulture, yes. And Sekulture said, My brother cannot stay in Europe, he's got to come home to Africa. So he announced before a stadium of people that Nkrumah will be the president of Guinea. And he made arrangements to bring Nkrumah from exile in Romania back home to West Africa to the special land of Guinea. And of course Nkrumah, they knew that it could be a president. So they made a dual presidency so Seiko Toure and Nkrumah shared the presidency of Guinea, Guinea and he was, asked, he was able to leave his last six or seven years writing books on revolution and writing books on struggle and neo-colonialism uh, because he had the blessings of the Guinea revolution, which he had saved. Now, this is the type of history that has not been written by anybody and not been properly told. I may never get a chance to, to tell it because I'm at 80 right now, but I'm sure glad that you have given me the opportunity to even touch on why we need you young fellows with these cameras to begin to tap into a story which will not be told. The story of the brotherhoods and the, and the, and the struggle together, the story of the sacrifice, the story of defeat and a complete desolation. In other words, when Nkrumah was taken down, that was it. We might as well give up if the greatest of us has taken down, stomped into the ground, stuck up in, the peak in Peking, and then hiding out in Romania. If the greatest of us is subject to that, what, what more is there for us little ones coming up? And so when the brotherhood reached its fulfillment with reciprocity, that's a deep African tradition of, of, of reciprocity. And when, when Sekou uh, did that with our brother uh, Kwame, Uh, it showed us that there was uh, an African spiritual tradition, an African great mind force of the universe. And it didn't stop with just Sekou Toure and the Guinea Revolution and Kwame Nkrumah and the Ghana Revolution. One of us, one of our radicals, real radicals, who graduated from the Bronx High School, graduated from Howard University, came from a Caribbean family, Trinidad, Tobago, and he was hooked up in the struggle in black America in the 60s, ready to give his life, and he was walking from Montgomery to Selma and all of that, and at one point, one of his partners, Willie Ricks Mukasa, yelled out, Black Power! And then. This brother from Trinidad, Tobago, educated in New York, et cetera, he took as an articulator of the movement. He took that Black Power slogan and walked it through history, walked it through the South, walked it through a book he wrote on Black Power, walked it through the radical movement of the Panthers and the and the uh, uh, you know the series the 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 series brothers who, who, you know. Black Liberation Army. Black Liberation Army, and and also taking five southern states with our brothers coming out of Detroit, saying we're going to put that, that in place. Kwame Ture, as a special spirit, raised in New York from roots in Trinidad and in the various movements with King. He loved King. He helped to give King courage to be more radical. He loved African peoples, particularly the African family. And so, for him to be the person who follows this unity of Seku and Nkrumah together, and he creates a composite name of Kwame from Kwame and Krumah, Krumah and Seku from Seku Ture, and then he goes to spend the rest of his life in Africa, in Guinea. And then my wife and I had the The blessing of, in 1970, when we set up the Black Studies Department in San Jose in 1960, we met Alex Haley, we met Ron Dillam's radical tradition. Uh, We met Alex Haley, radical writer who was trying to link us to Africa. And uh, uh, we met the radical of radicals with her big afro. Angela Davis. Her trial was in San Jose. They moved it from San Salinas County to moved it down right on my doorstep and we had to mobilize the community to help her. The Soledad mothers came to San Jose to get support for what became the Soledad brothers. Kathleen Cleaver said when we were being honored as the couple of the struggle in Selma, several months ago, Kathleen Cleaver, uh, telling her story said she moved from Alabama, Birmingham, in sixty-six, to go to Oakland to be a part of that struggle. So Kwame Ture is in the mountains of Guinea with a beautiful sister called Miriam Akiba. We're in San Jose, setting up an African Studies program, with the Black Studies program and an Urban Studies program because I come out of urban America. And we, since I've been traveling through Africa and, and Europe for the. 10 years before I conceive of a moving classroom in my first year at San Jose we decided to have an African American urban studies seminar for the summer for a month and then to top it off with an African continental studies program for the next month so we conceived of in our first year of setting up a black studies program as a moving Black studies programs through black radicalism and so we have 35 people 16 students community leaders and the two Gregory kids a wheelchair bound lawyer uh, who went with us and also Cecil uh, uh, of the, the famous radical minister in in San Francisco him and his wife go But the important thing was we had these Gregory kids. They followed us going from the Bay Area Urban Studies down to Los Angeles Urban Studies, over to Houston, Dallas Urban Studies, on to New Orleans Urban Studies, on to Jackson State, on to Mississippi, on to Alabama, on to Atlanta, on to Washington, D.C., Howard, on to New York. And then we all got on the plane after this month of activity we flew to Africa, but you had to go by way of Europe. And so we're in the airport in Paris, 35 black people with these two kids, eight and 11, Dick Gregory's oldest kids. He had never been to Africa, his wife little, but they read something spiritually and my wife and I, and they said, our children, our oldest children need to go to Africa with Jeremy. It is not easy to take eight and 11 year olds. You gotta watch the drinking, the food, and, and situation but we were glad to take the challenge because we have been doing it since the early 60s we get to paris 35 black people at the airport and then we feel this empowering breeze coming on us and we feel, it's feeling so good we don't know what it is and we're ready to be toppled over and there she was josephine baker josephine baker who had lived in exile in the 20s and had become the hit of paris and whatnot and and had adopted all these children of mixed background, and here she is, seeing children in the airport, black people, she left everything and came to us. And then I told her they were decorated because she didn't know what to do. I knew them when they were babies, and she's hugging these youngsters. Josephine Vega, linking up her legacy and struggle with that which we brought from America, ready to take to Africa. We leave Paris, and we fly to Africa, and we go to Senegal, and then we go up into the mountains of Guinea. And in the mountains of Guinea, we go up. I had done my workshop at Mamu, at the foot of the Futajala Mountains. And when you go higher into the mountains, you got La Bay, and you got dalaba and you got Pita. And so we are taking this group through Senegal, Ivy Coast, Mali, and now we're going to Guinea. And in the mountains of Guinea, we go up to dalaba and I can still see her now, on this mountain range, in this temperate area of, Zinni, of Guinea, her two-story hut with the thatched roof this thick. And in that two-story hut, covering that two-story hut, uh, that two-story hut roof was covering five rooms of red carpet masterful traditional African building and walking out of the mists of the mountains comes this spirit force toward us to greet her and it's Miriam Akiba. in the mountains now Kwame Ture was not there with her he was down in the capital with Seko Toure. She was there receiving us by herself. And when she realized these babies were Dick Gregory's babies, she went crazy. So I'm saying that you raise this question of the radical tradition. There we are, linking the radical tradition of black America, the Caribbean, Europe, and the radical tradition of South Africa in the mountains of Guinea. I mean, how, who, how, who could have planned that? Who could tell? This is the first time this story has ever been told by me. And whenever Dick Gregory sees us, 50 years later, he says, I'm indebted to the Jeffreys. My wife, a little indebted to Jeffreys for taking my babies to Africa. I tricked them. They wanted to go to Disneyland. I said, if you go with the Jeffreys to Africa, you'll go to Disneyland. He said, they never mentioned Disneyland after they came back from Africa. One of them went on to become a PhD, London School of Economics, doing a study, I believe, on the market women. Of of. Those babies were transformed by that experience. And they helped to transform the rest of the Gregory kids. He has about ten kids. Lil raised the kids while Gregory keeps on with the struggle. And they have this magnificent relationship of radical social movement. That's Dick Gregory. He's more than anything anybody can account The fact that he could read us spiritually and give us his children is more than Ros and I could bear. Because the year before 69, when I went to set up the Black Studies program in San Jose, I had been at a, in Los Angeles at a conference of, of the African Studies Association, white folks studying black people. And Dr. Clark led us there. And he led these radicals, James Turner, Len Jeffries, Ron Walters, Dr. Shelby Lewis, Dr. Herschel Chaloner, And we went there to challenge these white folks to say, we want to share of the study of, of blackness uh, in the colleges and whatnot. and so. They didn't know what to do with us, but we, we brought the radical thing right to them. But then something even more significant and radical occurred, personally for me, was Hal Weaver, who was studying at Columbia with me, said, Len, we need to go to Mexico. I said, what the hell do you mean we need to go to Mexico? How We're here to deal with these white folks in this white association. He said, no, you don't understand. I said, what the hell do you mean I don't understand? He said, they're raising hell down in Mexico. So I said, so what? He said, no, they're raising hell at the Olympics. So what? He said, listen, fool. I said, it took us just every penny we could get to get here to Los Angeles. He said, Len Jeffries, listen to me for a minute, so I calmed down. He said, for 25 extra dollars on your Los Angeles New York ticket, you can go to Mexico. I said, what? He said, yes, for 25 extra dollars, we can go to Mexico to deliver. I said, yes, <laughs> let's go. And So we flew down to Mexico. And so we were not there. The, the, the fist had already been raised by John Carlos, but we were there, I was there to be John Carlos. In other words, they kicked John Carlos out of the Olympic Village He didn't quite know all of the dynamics that had been caused by him and Tommy Smith raising their fists. So I met him at the Diplomatic Hotel on the elevator going upstairs. And so we connected. John Carlos, big thighs, long legs, broad shoulders taller than me. But there are very few black Americans in Mexico. So wherever I moved in Mexico City, People thought I was Carlos. And they'd be whispered, there he is, there he is. And women and kids, and everybody would come up to, to greet me in Spanish. And, Je parle très bien le français. I speak French very well. I try to translate Chekhov de Dieppe's great work, Civilization Barbarism, in French. But I didn't know how to tell the people, I'm not him. So I had to just take all the hugs and kisses they can get. But it was a great moment for me because when the Olympic team called Jamaican was doing their running, This is 1968 now. They won. Whenever they won their matches, their black fists went up to support Carlos. When the white boy who developed this high jump backwards called the Fosby flop, whenever he uh, took his uh, and won, his hand went up. And so I saw this support of Carlos and was able to, you know, related to him whatever spiritual way I could, because he was in and out of the village. So I stayed for the whole Olympics. And it was important to be there because the government of Mexico had killed dozens of Mexican students, so it was a big scandal. They were going to postpone or cancel it, but they, they covered it up, and so it was important. So when John Collins was raising his fists radically, that upset the Mexican government to no end because they were just trying to suppress a radical movement in Mexico. But the greatest moment for me was at the end, which I did see. And in the stadium, of 80,000 people. The people are screaming and yelling and carrying on. And I'm wondering, what the hell is going on? And I can't understand the, the Spanish. But it gets louder and louder and louder and louder. And all of a sudden, into the stadium comes the leader of the pack in the marathon. And it's a black man kicking it, kicking it, kicking it. No shoes on, ahead of everybody. In other words, I can never forget that. And that set the mark for all of these East Africans and Ethiopians and Kenyans dominating the long distance because the white folks said y'all don't have the physical being, you okay; don't, don't have the breathing. And so John Carlos not only broke through with of raising of the fifth and linking sports to serious struggle, but you had the strength of Africa uh, manifested in the, uh, these runners. So we go back to New York, we participate in City College, setting up the first black course at City College in 19, fall uh, no, the spring of 1969, and I'm teaching this black course about race and the struggle the radical struggle, the nationalist struggle, and the course that I gave. And while I'm teaching it, the students go into struggle. Stokely Carmichael and Kwame Ture and Rap Brown had gone after King's assassination. They didn't go from city to city, from town to town, telling people, get out your Molotov cocktails, burning it down. They went from campus to campus and they said, organize, 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 demand uh, uh, your access to these institutions. So the Black Studies movement that exploded in 1968-69 has two great moments. The fist of John Carlos in the air and Kwame Ture after King's assassination and Rap Brown going to college after college, sitting down telling them plan how to make demands and how to put in place your education and, and job opportunities for yourself. And so the City College Black Studies uh, program actually comes out of Kwame Ture and Brown telling students to be strategic in what you do, be strategic in your explosions, be strategic in your tech and your strategy, and have uh, your immediate goals, your intermediate goals, your long distance goals. He helped to set, they helped to set the Black Studies Movement on a serious pattern of not just being an academic program, but being a transformation of those who were in the program and who were a part of it. So I finished out my first year at City College, Half of it was not on the college, because when the students took over the campus in April, I took my classes off of the campus and took them down to Salem Methodist, uh, and, and I taught them in the community. But May 1969 was the celebration of Malcolm's death, and so a lot of people were having celebrations of Malcolm, including those in the West Coast. So they had a celebration of Malcolm at San Jose. Harry Edwards and others probably were part of it. I just left a brother, Mel Whitfield, who was in Washington, uh, was a part of it. And they somehow either must have heard or seen me at the uh, 1968 Los Angeles conference, but they asked me to come with James Turner and others to be considered for their Black Studies program. And so I went to uh, California and I participated in the interviews, and somehow, uh, I got it. James Turner got the program in Cornell, eventually, and uh, Ron Walters got Brandeis and others. So I was in San Jose, and I set up the first black studies program there, and who was in my classes? John Carlos. Who was in the classes with him? His wife. Who was in the classes with her? Her sister. Who was in the classes with her sister? Her husband, Mel Terry. So who was with us when we went that year and took the Gregory kids? Mel Terry was there, and his wife was there. In other words, meeting John Carlos at the elevator in 68 in Mexico City. The spirits and the creator would have him in the classroom in front of both my wife, she taught at San Jose, and and we became family. To this day, John Carlos is a part of Led Jefferson. I just came from Atlanta uh, a couple of months ago when I went to Atlanta. I missed him because his son, grandson, was being, uh, having something important to do. And so uh, the number of John Carlos is here in my, no, Dr. J, you you, you, you do not skip. The number of John Carlos is not there, but the number of Minister Farrakhan's right-hand man in Africa is Akbar Mohammed, and he was in the Atlanta area with his family because he had been told to write the story. The stuff that I'm talking to you about now is what he has experienced, like nobody else, going to fifty African countries and all the things he's done. But the I did have John Carlos's number here. Uh, next time I go to Atlanta, which will be after I come back from this African trip, um, part of the. Family family, uh, uh, the Brownes, and that's the hair people in Ghana, in, in Atlanta. So they'll be celebrating their 70th anniversary. I'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of the death of my grandfather in Georgia. And so I'll be able to contact uh, John Coles again. So what I'm saying is these are long-distance runners. These are, are super sprinters. So whether, you, uh, whether your destiny was to be a 100-yard dash you needed to do it as best you can in Africanizing your lives, our lives, and yours. And So we've had our 100-yard dashes. Malcolm was a 100-yard dash. He didn't, was not in the game for a long time. He came from a, a Caribbean African-American family route that was Garveyite, but his father was killed early in Michigan, his mother was hospitalized, and, Mal, and, and Malcolm fell into a ditch and, and went the wrong way. But when he was in the nation, uh, in the prison, the nation, and other Muslim traditions spoke to him. His sister Ella and others worked to bring him anew. So Malcolm represents change, transformation, rebirth, and resurrection, as we all do. No matter how down we are, and no matter how bad our circumstances, we have the ability for resurrection rebirth. And these lives that we've lived, our family lives, are our case in point. So. Malcolm's family became very close to me through Professor James Small, who was with Sister Ella for seven years. and so we we celebrated most recently the forty something anniversary of Malcolm's uh, celebration. So the, the one in San Jose was uh, very significant uh, because that got me uh, to uh, be a part of uh, of looking for a a new director. So I'm saying we have to understand and we have to see our connectedness. And for us being out there worrying about a Trump, yes, you keep your eye on him, but you got to build. You got to build your economics, you got to build your politics, you got to build your culture. And so I'm so glad to be a part of this and to have a partner like the Reverend, the most distinguished Reverend Herbert Daughtry uh, to be a part of it and he's been a big part of my life and he's the, all the struggles he's gone through have paralleled mine and, and he's been through some physical structures struggles that are not uh, he's had operations uh, in, in in his head that a w- w- blessing of the creator the creator was not finished with him uh, he, he's jogging and running and walking to washington dc uh, with a personal statement of of our struggle and his mission and the mission we need to have. So I want to congratulate both of you all for pulling these type of of activities together, and and I'll be able to uh, continue uh, to help you with this work because it's so significant.